It's time for JT the Brick. Receiver from the University of Colorado, number 21, Cliff Branch. We kick off the summer of Cliff Branch. Tucker drops back to pass. Steps up. He looks. Over the middle. He's got it. Touchdown, Raiders! It's cut by Cliff Branch. The summer of Cliff. Cliff Branch. All summer long. JT the Brick. Prepare your phone call. I want Cliff content from you. Stabler plays big back to pass. Gets a big rush. Otto cuts the man. Stabler throwing deep for Grant. He's got it to 20. The 10. Touchdown, Raiders! What separated Cliff was he was amazing, meticulous route runner. As we count down to Cliff, the summer of Cliff on the flagship. And now, here's JT the Brick. Thanks for coming back, everybody. JT in Vegas today in studio with Bobby Machado, my longtime producer who... Really does a lot to get this show off the ground every day. A cue coming up after us. Hope you like everything that's happening on the flagship as we debuted the Summer of Cliff. As we are ready for the Summer of Cliff and what that means, a countdown to Cliff Branch's induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton in early August. Hopefully you're going. If you can't go, it'd be nice if you gave us a phone call about his career. We'll talk to Matt McCants, former Raider at the bottom of the hour. Also, Eric Pincus, really good NBA insider, supposed to check in here in the next five to ten minutes. We'll wait to see what's happening with him. Harry Ruiz will be in for me on the back end of this week here. Harry is the Latino voice of the Raiders. Perfect fill-in for me. He's an equal. He's an equal to me at every level. He's a fantastic broadcaster, and he's a lot of fun, and he loves what he's doing. A great addition to this lineup here on Raider Nation Radio. So 25 years ago tonight, I walked into the MGM Grand to see Tyson Holyfield too. 25 years ago tonight. And that's a big deal for me because I've been in the business. I just passed my 26-year anniversary. So very early in my career, I figured out that the biggest perk in Vegas was to be someone covering boxing. So I worked for Sports Fan Radio Network, and we were able to get a credential for the fight. And I got here, and I was doing midnight to 5 a.m. That was my shift when I started in 96. Let that sink in. Midnight to 5 a.m. And it was one of the best shifts in radio at the time because I was on 100 radio stations right out of the gate. Because midnight to 5 a.m. is 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. Eastern. In a lot of the big stations in the country, I was their morning guy, morning guy coming into their morning drive shows. that came on at 7 a.m. And we had a big show. We are on KMBR, San Francisco, The Ticket in Dallas, WEEI in Boston, WQAM in Miami, The Ticket in Dallas. So all these stations carried the show. Not because of me. They just they needed programming in the middle of the night, so they picked up the show. So what I figured out was the only way I'm going to be able to get my name going in this business is i got to find a way to go to sporting events. But I live in Vegas, and there's no football team other than UNLV. There's no baseball team. There's no hockey team other than the Thunder, which I was the on-ice guy, with John Sassenti, who was Boom Boom. He runs the bowl game now, the Las Vegas Bowl. That's a story for another day. And I, I realized that I could get credentials to the fight, and that would give me access to the fight so I can go to the media room. I can go down to the MGM or whatever and walk right in. And back in the day, there were great media iconic boxing insiders who were covering the sport. That's when I first met Al Bernstein and so Jim Lampley and so many other people. And I started to introduce myself, which I like to do. I go up to people, hey, this is who I am. I'm on the radio. Here's my card. Because I was a stockbroker. I knew how to introduce myself to people and ask for business. So I started building a little loop of boxing insiders. At the time, a guy by the name of John Saracino from USA Today was really big in the business. 
So that night, as I lived, and I lived over at the Koval Street Apartments, right on the corner where Tupac got shot, right there. And that night, I don't recall if I walked, because it was a hot, hot, hot night. And I think I got a ride or I took a cab, and I got to the MGM Grand. And when I checked in, uh, part of my mojo still to this day is to get a couple cocktails, check out the, the lay of the land. I got in there, and I went to the back of the MGM Grand where the sports book used to be. So when you walk in the MGM Grand now, if you walk directly to the back, there's a Starbucks and a restaurant called Crush. Back then, that was the sports book. It wasn't hidden in the corner. And I walked back there, and Sports Fan Radio Network, we were doing programming from there 24 hours, and that was the fight night. So I remember hooking up with Steve Cofield on ESPN, and they said, after the fight, you're going to come on with us. That was part of my job that night. I had off to go to the fight, but I had to go on the radio. So I said, yeah, I'll be here as soon as the fight ends. So I'm in a sports coat or a suit, and I go into the fight, and I sit down, and I'll just cut to the chase with Tyson Holyfield. When that fight, I've never seen more people dressed for a fight, and the crowd was one of the most angriest I've ever seen in sports. It was angry. There were gangsters, pimps prostitutes, athletes in every sport, dressed up in suits, ready to party. And I noticed a level of anger and intensity that night that had the hair on the back of my neck popping up like, this could get ugly. Because there were too many people in the lobby of the MGM Grand who thought they were somebody. They were this guy, this guy. And a lot of people were in town from L.A., and you got the vibe that it was L.A.'s night, not Vegas's night. So when the fight happens and the fight starts and it comes in, and this is Tyson Holyfield 2, where Holyfield won the first fight and took apart Tyson. And then the second fight, Tyson was still the favorite. And Tyson came out ferociously. And before he came out, Evander Holyfield was introduced into the ring and he was singing gospel. And I remember being about 15, 20 rows back, ringside. And Evander had his hands up, singing the gospel and smiling. And he had not worry in the world. Tyson came in all worked up. You could see the element of Tyson was on edge. And his corner was on edge. And you could see the crowd standing. So the fight gets underway. The rest is history. Uh, Evander Holyfield starts headbutting Tyson to Tyson's to give Tyson credit. He needed to defend himself because Holyfield was leading with his head and butted Tyson and cut him pretty badly. And Tyson just snapped. He just snapped and lost it. I'm not defending what he did, but I know why he did it. He was getting bullied. He was going to lose the fight again, and he was getting headbutted. So his mind was scrambled at that point, and that's when he clinched, and Mills Lane tried to separate him, and he bit his ear. Here's how it sounded 25 years ago tonight. What happened here? Can you can he go on? Yes. Okay. 
going to be a two-point deduction. The fight will go on. A very angry Evander Holyfield now. That's a left hook. You know, it's funny. Mike was having his best round. He him again. He, he did him again. again. Mike Tyson has bitten Evander Holyfield for the second time, and it is all out for. I'll tell you what, this is unbelievable. So that's how it sounded 25 years ago tonight. Tyson was a minus 200 favorite at that time, despite the TKO loss in the first fight. Uh, Tyson was 34-1, and one, two non-decisions in his career in fights that lasted three rounds or fewer. Uh, no contest there. So Tyson was coming back here. This was the most important fight of his life. And he came out for the third round without his mouthpiece, and Lane ordered him to put it back in. He was fined $3 million, which was about 10% of the amount of money he made that night. And this was the last Mike Tyson fight promoted by Don King. It was, now at that point in time, all hell broke loose in the ring. So I am sitting, again, 15, 20, 25 rows back. And I look behind me, and in the rafters of the MGM Grand, I see a woman in a dress going face first down the rafters. Imagine that. Like you're skiing and you're wiped out and she was going down. And the screaming from the women is what I remember the most. Was the sound of the women in the arena screaming. And everybody was now running, kind of. So people were there to watch the chaos there. So when the chaos happened and it calmed down for a minute, Mike Tyson got on the outside of the ring, on the apron of the ring, and he was staring at us at Media Row. And I could see in his eyes that his eyes were dark and blank. He was out of it. He didn't know where he was. And it really reminded me at that moment of a lion or a tiger in a cage that was released and didn't have a leash. Like you looked up at him and said, this guy could kill me right now. That's how ferocious he looked. He was out of his mind. He didn't remember anything. And so I had to be on the radio. So what I did was I found a way to get out of there off the floor and I kind of came out the MGM Grand, and I found my way back in the back of the property by the sports book. And I came in, and there was complete chaos in the casino. Chaos everywhere. People running. Uh, gunshots were the rumors. Some people said it was champagne popping. It wasn't. The rumors of gunfire. I didn't see the gunfire, but there was rumors of it. And basically, there was a riot inside the hotel. So I got up to Steve Cofield, and Steve was on the air, and I don't know if he was on, I forget who he was on with, but I jumped in, I was the guest, I put the headset on, he said, what happened, what happened? I'm like, this is what happened, bite night, you would just get, this was pre-internet and pre-text messaging. Remember that, you didn't have text messages on your phone, and you didn't have the internet, so no one knew. So I'm telling the people the chaos that what happens there. And then at that moment, which I put in my book, The Handoff, I'll never forget this, a bunch of women started running, they were crying, and they dove underneath our set. So they were underneath our set in hysteria crying, and I'm looking over Steve Cofield's head into the casino, and it was like the scene in the Titanic when the water breaks into the Titanic and it just starts blowing everything aside. People were just throwing casino tables to the side, and you could see it coming towards us. 
And we were like, this is crazy because the girls thought there were gunshots. There were. Everybody's in fear now of what's going on because there could be a shooting going on. Cofield goes to break. I got We got the audio somewhere. I take the headset off. I'm like, I'm out of here. I get out of there and I go, I kick a side door open and boom, I'm out on the streets. And I'm out on the streets and I could see the front of the MGM Grand and there was at least 50 cop cars, not five, 50. And cop cars were going everywhere, everywhere around town. So my hangout at the time was the Hard Rock. So I walked from the MGM Grand to the Hard Rock. And what is it, half a mile, maybe not even a mile? And I got there and I walked in and there was no bigger place to be at the time than the Hard Rock. The MGM had a bigger night that night, but the center bar at the Hard Rock is where everybody was. And I remember walking in to see my buddy Todd, who was a bartender there. And again, this wasn't up yet. It was like they were putting it up on Sports Center because there were no phones and again, there was no internet. And I walked in there and I started telling people the story, what I saw. And they were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, this just happened. They're all coming here. They're all coming here. Get ready. This is the closest property really on the backside of this, and everybody's running for their lives. They think there's guns going off in there. So we get there, and my buddy Todd and I, we hang out at the center bar, and we have a late night, and the sun's coming up. And Todd does the overnight shift. He did the late night overnights. And he got up at, you know, he got up after his shift, and he drove home, and he decided he was going to drive by Tyson's mansion. This is a true story. And Todd's going down the street where Tyson lives, and he looks to Tyson's house, and Tyson's coming out of his front gate on a Harley with no shirt on. And my buddy looks and goes, oh, my God. And Tyson just pulled out in front of him with no shirt on in the Harley and takes off. That was my recollection of bite night. To this day, it was the most dangerous sporting event I've ever been to. No debate. I've been to crowds. I've seen fights. I've seen a lot of things. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen people more angry and intense going in and coming out of an event. It was the end of Mike Tyson's career. We all know what happened after that. And for Mike Tyson, who could have been one of the greatest fighters of all time, bite night really defined him as a guy who'd had nothing left and Evander Holyfield was able to pick him off and beat him because he wasn't intimidated by the once angry and the guy who intimidated more boxers than anyone, Iron Mike Tyson. That was 25 years ago tonight in Vegas. That's my, that's my story on that. And I hope I never, ever in my life go to an event like that again with that much pent-up anger, danger, testosterone. I mean, I've talked to English soccer hooligans who have gone into soccer stadiums with 100,000 ready to fight. That was just different. That was different, and that was 25 years ago, and it really was the kickoff of my career. So that's what we have there. All right, so when we come back, we'll talk to Eric Pincus. When we come back, we'll talk to him. He's supposed to check in. We're missing him on what's happening with everything happening with all these NBA contracts, opting in and opting out. Uh, Matt McCants of the Raiders, former Raider at the bottom of the hour. And then hopefully your phone calls on Cliff Branch, 702 365 9200 Raider Nation Radio Bite Night 25 years ago tonight at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Vegas.
Irving, left wing three. Good! There's 60 for Kyrie Irving. A franchise record, a career high. A timeout Orlando. The self-described net fan growing up from West Orange, New Jersey, sets franchise history. It's tied with Carl Anthony Town to the most points scored in the NBA this season. Kyrie Irving with 60 points. Kyrie had some big games when he played. He didn't play a lot. JT back with you, brought to you by Virgin Hotels, where I just saw Primus this past weekend, ate at one steak, had some drinks at Olive's. The restaurants are fantastic. Go outside to the pool. They have a great pool party. They got a great atmosphere outside. Concerts inside at the World Famous. Used to be the joint. Now it's called the theater. I was just there. I'm telling you, the acoustics, it's the place to be. Head on out to Virgin Hotels. Pleasure to welcome in Eric Pincus, longtime Laker insider, now a salary cap strategist. Capologist, writer, instructor at Sports Biz Class and with Bleacher Report. And Eric, let's begin. You just heard Kyrie Irving in that soundbite. Pretty obvious that he would opt in because of all that money. Did you see it that way? It was kind of a wild ride for a minute there because he was trying to figure out how he could get out of there, go to a place that, um, you know, specifically the Lakers that could try to pay him. But the problem was that the Lakers don't have the means to do so without a trade. So I, I wouldn't say it's totally dead. Uh, now that he's opted in, he can be traded. He could just uh, be traded on more of the the time frame that matches what the Nets want to do. And they they don't have to do it this week, which is if it was opt-in, it would have had to happen. Or if it was uh, basically if it was a trade kind of situation, it might have had to have been done like next 24 hours, 48 hours. So uh, it pushes it back a little bit. What what was the complexities around the Lakers and what the Lakers are thinking? Because they're not going to admit to anything that they don't have to admit to. Rob Palenka and the entire organization that they wanted him badly or not, and they couldn't get him because he opted in. There's still, as you know, a possibility that he opts in for a trade, to do a trade here. But what's the motivation of the Lakers? Do you think there was real interest in Kyrie? Well, I mean, they needed him ultimately to opt in anyway, so... But again, you're 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 absolutely right in that. Like Rob Plinka can't talk about first of all a player under contract with another team, let alone that he has a point guard, and that point guard is you know Russell Westbrook. Now, uh, they, obviously last year was a mess, right? The Lakers were terrible. There's some internal logic with the Lakers that some of it was coaching, some of it was injury, and that they think they'll be better with with a healthy year and da da da. So you know that's the face they're putting on Russell Westbrook now. If they had the chance to upgrade for an all-star like Kyrie Irving, where at least LeBron has that relationship, maybe it could work out. Um, you know, they went and won the title together. So I think the logic there was it would be an upgrade that they would have been willing to make. But the timing just wasn't right, uh, trying to force it through. The, the Nets had no interest in Westbrook. You had to rope in a third team. Maybe you could have brought the Thunder into it. And I think there was some discussion on some level. But then the Thunder are going to want to get paid for taking on Westbrook. And the Nets are going to want to be paid for for giving away Kyrie. And so you get into this kind of situation where the Lakers have to give up too much. And it's just not worth it. Eric Pinkett is our guest. So with John Wall, I think it's one of the worst contracts in NBA history because of the enormity of it. Now the buyout and the reports are from Woj that he could end up with the Clippers here. Look, Steve Ballmer's got unlimited money. You cover L.A. as good as anybody, and 
the fit there would be if he was completely healthy. He wouldn't be logging 40 minutes a night, could give one of the two guards, Paul George or Kawhi, a breather there and maybe run a rotation with them. Does this make sense to you looking at the money compared to the other contracts for the Clippers when he clears waivers? Well, I mean, the the reported amount that he's giving up in his buyout matches basically what the Clippers have to spend this summer, which is mm-hmm. uh, roughly $6.5 million. And so this, the thought is, is that that's where their money's going. And, and it, Reggie Jackson's their point guard, right? And he, 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 it's a great story where he was kind of bounced around the NBA, and he's become a really important part of that team. But they don't really have anyone backing him up. I mean, their, their backup point guard's been Terrence Mann, who's really a, a you know, small forward or a shooting guard who has some skill. He's a good player, but, I mean, he's not like a true point guard. So to add in someone on paper like John Wall is great. I mean, the guy hasn't played in a couple of years. He's gone through some serious injuries, and, and I wish him well. He's been a really talented player when he's been healthy. Uh, so I, you know, let's see. It works out. You don't have to play him, like you said, 40 minutes a game. If he's there to, to just contribute and play in his role and is happy playing in that role, backing up Reggie Jackson, I think that's a easy win for the Clippers. But you know, they if they're giving that full amount to him, then they're going to have to potentially lose out on uh, re-signing Isaiah Hartenstein, who's a really nice backup center. And, uh, you know, you're just – I think they'll be all right, but uh, I'm curious what that means as far as that uh, – because uh, a lot of teams like Isaiah Hartenstein, he's a, he played really well for the, for the Clippers. That, that's uh, a, a story I'm going to have to dig into. Eric Pink is kind enough to join us. So I was walking through some of the biggest contracts in the NBA – Steph Curry next year, 48 million, then 51, 55, 59. Durant going out to 2025, 20, 26, 53 million. Giannis in 25, 26, 51 million. Also, Jimmy Butler gets 52 million. That came off a sign and trade. It seems, Eric, like we're moving to the point where we're going to get to the $50 million contract for the aging superstar on the back end of the deal if they're able to live through it. I'm just wondering what's going to happen when Luca starts to have his bird rights and starts doing deals and continues to extend. Can we get to the point where it's going to be $55, 60000000 million for a regular season, not guaranteeing the playoffs? The money seems to be more out of control than ever. Right. Well, I mean, business is good for the NBA. Mm-hmm. And the, the way the deal goes is half that money that comes in goes to the players roughly. And, um, you know, we're not paying to watch Steve Ballmer play basketball. I mean, I, I'd go to an exhibition, you know, to see him play maybe against Cuban for, yeah, I wouldn't pay for it, but I'd watch it. You know what I mean? But uh, we're watching the best athletes in the world play one of the greatest games. And uh, I don't begrudge them making that money. Now, what that means moving forward is uh, we're going to have a new collective bargaining agreement, most likely not this season coming, uh, but the one after. And so, uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, do the do the owners fight to reduce salaries? I don't think the players are going to really get along with that. And I don't think there's so much money in the system now that I don't think it does the owners any good to kind of go into a lockout. So, uh, and then when we get to 2025, uh, we'll probably know a year earlier. But 2025 is when the next TV deal kicks in, and who knows? I mean, it could be one of these streaming giants, Amazon. It could, who knows who's going to be putting their money into the NBA. And if, if the money jumps, I mean, the contracts could just absolutely skyrocket further. So I'm really curious to see if they try to spread the wealth a little bit so that everybody gets a little bit higher than what they're getting instead of it just going to, like you said, like the aging superstars. But 
you know, money's a little bit out of control, but then, you know, the teams are a lot healthier than they were go back a decade. And so if the teams are healthy and the players are healthy, I, I, I can't really find fault with it. Eric, finally, last one. When I look at the TV deal and all the money coming in here, the load management issues seem to calm down a bit. I, I believe that Adam Silver is going to want to make sure that more players are available for these national games, and these national games have all the stars there. But you made a very interesting point. The league is doing very well, and as the NFL is dealing with owners who are getting criticized, one in Miami, Stephen Ross, on the Brian Flores lawsuit. You've been following Daniel Snyder with the Washington Commanders, Jerry Jones. There are issues when it comes to the commissioner of the NFL and the owners. We don't seem to have that now since Donald Sterling. And back when you were covering that story in Los Angeles and I was there, it seems like there's a lot of peace going on now. Franchises are going up in value. Everybody seems to be happy with the TV deal here. You don't hear a lot of uh, chatter about China, Hong Kong, and the issues that we had a couple of off-seasons ago. So I would agree with you. Business is good for the NBA, and more and more money's coming in, right? True. And, and I mean, they're still not quite where they were when it comes to uh, the money that was lost in China because of that issue. And the league is still rebounding from the pandemic. I mean, it, it, it was a difficult time, but they got through it financially. Obviously, there's much more important stuff in, in the real world, but in the basketball world, it was a very successful experience getting through the bubble the way they did, and, and the union and, and the league worked well together. Uh, there is an issue with one of the owners, Robert Sarver's under investigation for some things yeah. uh, in Phoenix. So we'll see what how that pans out. I don't know if, if, if that results in the same kind of situation as a – a Sterling where he was basically forced to sell a team. I don't, I, I, I couldn't even guess at this point, but um, I think we'll find out. I imagine in, in the next three months, probably after free agency at some point this off season, we'll at least get a sense of where that investigation is taking us. Enjoy the rest of the summer. Eric, are you coming out for NBA summer league? Oh yeah. I'll be teaching at sports business classroom. There's still time to sign up. If you're looking for a career in basketball, just uh, follow me on Twitter at Eric Pincus, hit me up and I'll uh, have a conversation with you. We'll talk about it. See if this is the right program for you. Yeah. And I'm based in Vegas. So I'll see you out at summer league. Thanks for the time. Great talking to you again. All right. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you, Eric. Eric Pincus coming in here. He knows a lot about how these deals are going through, who's opting in and who's opting out. We appreciate him. I appreciate the fact I can talk to Matt McCants, former Raiders tackle, kind enough to join us here the summer at Cliff Branch as we continue talking to former Raiders players. And, Matt, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. How are you? JT, thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? Could not be better. Excited to talk to you. I want to begin early in your life as you go to high school. Is it true you're in the band before joining the football team prior to your senior year, you kind of had a little late start being a young football player, huh? That's very true. So my mom, she didn't want me to play football. She was afraid I would get hurt. Because uh, my mom, she couldn't have kids. I was born an orphan. I was adopted by my mom and my dad. And so she was just very protective of me. And she did not want me to play football. And I kid you not, her whole reason why for not letting me play was that I would get hurt. My very first snap that I'm in during spring ball, I break my arm. So oh. it was it was tough sledding, but I tell you what, perseverance is the key in everything we do. That's an amazing story, Matt. So your mom at that time, she was kind of worried about it. Then you get the injury. How'd you win her over where she was comfortable when she had a chance to see you? Because your senior year is incredible before you go on to college. When did she loosen up and start to enjoy the experience? I tell you what, she she never she never truly <laughs> let up, man. She was always concerned about me, but 
I tell you what, hearing I told you so from my mom was tough, but when I broke my arm and, and all the guys on the football team in my high school were telling me, hey, Matt, you sh- I knew you should have stayed in the band and I knew you weren't cut out for this. That, that little fire in me that I tell you what, it kept burning to this day. What was the recruiting process like there, being from Alabama and high school Mobile and going to UAB? Was there a lot of recruitment going on, or was UAB pretty much the, the group that wanted you at that time? Take me through that. So with me having a, such a late start and me breaking my arm, I didn't start playing until probably the fifth or sixth game of the season. And so I had a, a very limited uh, process up until that point. But when I was able to get into that game and, and just having all the hours of just preparation and practicing and, and visualizing myself performing on the field, when it was my turn and, what, and it was my opportunity, I made the most of it. And so I had a few schools, but UAB being the biggest, and I just they took, I, they took a chance on me and I ran with it. Uh, we're talking to Matt McCann's former Raider tackle. So when did it start really gelling for you? When did it start in college where you could see with your size and strength you could dominate some games, dominate your opponents, and knew you had a chance maybe to play on Sunday? So it, it started early on. So like I said, with that fire burning bright to just prove people wrong and, and prove the doubters in me and just gain my respect, I took that my freshman year until you, until UAB and ended up starting – uh, the majority of the games that year. And so from that point on, I knew I had the confidence I could play if I just keep working, if I keep practicing, I keep studying my craft, I had the chance to be something special. Matt McCants is our guest, former offensive tackle. So you go to the Giants, you're drafted by the Giants, 2012, the sixth round, pick number 201. Uh, the practice squad, the struggle, not making it there, being let go from the Giants. What did that do to your mental mindset before you ended up with the Oakland Raiders? i tell you what, every opportunity is a chance to learn. And so when I got drafted in 2012, the Giants had just won a Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and that team was still intact. So you had a veteran coach in Coach Coughlin. You had a veteran offensive line. You had Eli Manning. You had all of the parts in place. And so what I did as a young player, I just became a sponge. I, I, I learned how to operate as a professional. I learned how to watch film in the eyes of, of an offensive lineman and seeing how the game developed. And so I took those characteristics with me when I was able, when I was let go and I came to Oakland. I just was able to apply them at that time because the thing that happened in, in New York, it was just a championship field team and it was kind of like a numbers thing. But when I got to Oakland, I was able to apply everything that I had learned up until that point and go and have a successful career. No doubt about it. Matt McCants is our guest, former tackle for the Raiders. So what about those early Raider years? You come in there, and who were your mentors? Who did you lock in with, your favorite teammates? And then an opportunity to go from the uh, practice squad to the active roster. What was that like? So, I mean, like I said, everything is so divine and a blessing. When I got to Oakland, I had a 13-year vet in Tony Pachos. I had a long-term vet who played a lot of games in Khalid Bourne. Mm-hmm. I had Mike Brazell. I had Andre Garrard. And my offensive line coach was the late, great Tony Sperano. Right. And so with that just surrounding me, I was able to feel comfortable, and I was able to go out there and, and like I said, prove people who had the doubt in me 
wrong, if that makes sense. Who is the greatest defensive player you went up against? Remember those Oakland Coliseum years? You're looking towards the black yeah. hole. Who, maybe yeah. one or two of those defensive legends that you had to block and tackle. So I, that goes back to just having people around you. So I was fortunate enough to be around when we drafted Khalil Mack. And when he drafted, when he was drafted, who was else on that defensive line? You had Justin Tuck, you had Antonio Smith, you had Pat Sims, you had Charles Wilson in the secondary, Carlos Rodgers, you had all these veteran defensive players, Lamar Woodley. And so at practice, I was able to sharpen my tools against some of the best players who ever played defensive football. And so as iron sharp as iron, so does man sharp as man. And so going against those guys, going against Khalil Mack, uh, that that made me a better player because those guys were just playing at an all-time level. They were so smart and so crappy for what they did. It just allowed me to grow even more as a player. Matt McCants is our guest. Matt, I want to spend the rest of our time now with this kid, Alex Leatherwood, and what he's going through. He gets drafted. He wins the Outland Trophy out of Alabama. He comes in to play tackle. The Raiders move him inside to guard. There's a lot of pressure on him because the Raiders are loaded now, as you know, with Devontae Adams, Chandler yeah. Jones, Mad Max Crosby. We're sitting here with Hunter Renfro yeah. and great players. Yeah. But everyone I'm talking to is putting pressure on Leatherwood to take the next step so the Raiders can have him as a starter, either on the outside of tackle or on the inside of guard. You've been through this from up and down yeah. on the roster and fighting for a position. What advice yeah. would you give to Alex Leatherwood as he comes into his second year? So my advice that I would give to Alex Leatherwood is just allow the game to slow down in his head. Allow the game to slow down in his head and quit listening to the outside noise of everybody telling him, hey, I'm putting the pressure on you and you got to do this because if you listen to the pressure, that messes with your mind and, it's, and it makes you, makes you have self-doubt in yourself. It makes you kind of not believe in yourself to the extent because he has to just remember, hey, the Raiders drafted you for a reason. You was all in trophy reason, all in trophy winner in, high, in college. You have all the potential in the world. Believe in yourself. Have the confidence to go out there and do it, and he'll be successful. Because at the end of the day, the offensive line position is a, is a position of confidence. You're on the island. All the eyes are on you, and everybody only sees you when you make a mistake. So the thing is, going to that game, going to every practice with the confidence to know that he is and can dominate that position, and he'll be just fine. That's such a great comment and great soundbite. We'll make sure he gets that. You know, finally, Matt, when you're trying to stay in the league or develop as a tackle, is it more in the offseason? Did you concentrate or should Alex Leatherwood on conditioning, footwork, and especially your hands? Because I'm seeing these defensive ends, they all meet up, and Von Miller has a camp, and they're showing all these rip moves and all these crazy twists and how they turn their back and they make all these inside-outside moves. When you're a tackle and you're out on the island, how do you get better when there's not a lot of contact in practice? You're in shells, and there's not a lot of physicality because the league has changed so much. So what I equated, and so this is what I tell my players. I'm the assistant offensive line coach. I was blessed enough to be the assistant offensive line coach at my alma mater, UAB. Wow. And so this is what I tell our players, and this, this is something that's so true. We have to, and it's such an unnatural thing, uh, unnatural thing to pass it and, and move backwards when you have a man who is very talented running at you full speed. The thing that we have to do every day is work on our craft. That's one thing that I learned 
is a pass hit. It's just like a golf swing. It's just like Steph Curry shooting his three-point shot. You have to get as many reps as you can to try to perfect what you've got. That makes sense. You have to perfect your craft every day. And so that just comes with repetition, repetition. Tackle is a repetition. And out of the line period is a repetition position. So the more that you can visualize yourself taking passes or, or getting out and, and working with my hands as much as I can, that is the best way to negate these prolific pass rushes that are going into the NFL nowadays. Matt, you have such great stories to tell. I'm so happy of your career now as a coach at your alma mater because after Oakland, Cleveland, the Bears, the Browns, uh, Birmingham Iron, St. Louis Battlehawks, I mean, you were a guy that weren't going to take no for an answer. You kept fighting to play football and help out teams and be a a big-time teammate and help out others. Amen. Yes, sir. So the reason that I continued to play and and kept playing was early on in my career – me and my wife, we've been married nine years. Early on in my career, we could not have kids. And I would always see all the other players and they, their kids would come through and, and, and be in the locker room, and I always wanted that feeling. And so when God blessed us to have a son and he was old enough, I wanted him to have that experience. So I was I was blessed and fortunate enough to get that opportunity to keep playing and so that he can have that feeling to say, hey, I saw my dad play, and I, I was able to watch him in the game, come in the locker room, because that's something that these kids will take with them forever, if that makes sense. Well, I won't forget this interview, man. you got a great story, and you're a fighter, and it's a tremendous story. Congratulations with your family, your thank son. You, and you. Yes, the, Yeah, the blessings that you have, Matt. I hope to see you out here in Vegas for an alumni event or a game, and uh, look me up so we can connect again. Definitely. Thank you so much, JT. It was a blessing, man. I love Raider Nation. I love the Raiders. I love everything about the organization, the family aspect, the toughness. I mean, everything that it represented from the fans to the the ownership to everybody and every man that wore the silver and black. Everybody speaks the same language because it's something special about being in that fold and you never forget it when when you're part of it. Fantastic. Outstanding. You made my day. Talk to you soon, Matt. Thank you. Talk to you soon, JT. Take care. You got it, Matt McCants. Wow. I mean, wow. wow. I, I don't know. I, I get these names in front of me. I knew Matt was. I was there with him and a guy who played a bit here and there, but I had no idea the background of him being adopted and his mom didn't want to play. He broke his arm. He gets a chance. Goes to the Giants the year after they won the Super Bowl. Eli gets to the Raiders. The Khalil Mack story, and then the fact that he finally had a child, that's a mentor. That's a Raider. A Raider from 2013 through 2016. Then the guy went and played wherever he could just get on a team. And now he's a coach, assistant offensive line coach at UAB. I would run through a wall for that guy if he was my coach. God, he was good. Thanks again to the Raiders. Matt McCanns, hope you enjoyed that. From, you know, and not every interview is going to be Jim Plunkett. Fred Bolitnikoff. We're putting all these former players on the air to try to find their stories, and that one kind of blew me away. Really appreciate Matt McCants. Big Al in San Francisco on all this NBA moving, opting in, opting out, all trying to be the Warriors. How are you, Al? I'm doing good, JT. Doing, doing okay. I enjoyed listening to Matt McCants. I remember when, when he played with us for four years with the Raiders and when he was with the Giants beforehand. Uh, 
you know, every time he came in, he played the game the way it was supposed to be played. Mm-hmm. He played hard. Um, we gave him, you know, we gave him rave reviews when we were spotting games up in the booth. Uh, but, you know, in terms of, you know, the free agency, it starts on Thursday. There were three big move, moves today, but they really weren't that big. Okay, Russell, wasn't, Russell Westbrook wasn't going anywhere. He is not going to go anywhere. Um, the, uh, you know, the Kyrie Irving thing that happened yesterday, he still might go somewhere, but the only way he was going to have a chance to go somewhere is if he opted back in. And John Wall... I mean, he's missed three years, I think, of the last six with, a, with an assortment of injuries. Um, he's going to a team. I don't understand why um, people seem to think that he's going to come in and he's going to be the difference maker that's going to push the Clippers over the top. I was listening to uh, television a little bit earlier, and uh, one of the guys on ESPN was saying that he will push them into being the best team in the West. And I'm like, I'm not even so sure they'll be in the top one half of the West. We didn't, they weren't there this year. Um, the real free agency, you know, the real interesting stuff will start, I guess, it's tomorrow, it will start tomorrow night with not just players signing, because the direct signings won't be, as, uh, won't be as influential as the sign-in trades in this year's uh, free agency. You have a couple strong players that might uh, get directly signed, such as Zach Levine, but everything else is going to be predicated upon, um, we're going to sign you, we want something back, you're going to work with us, the other team's going to work with us, uh, you know, your former team, and there's going to be some fairly big movement. I anticipate this year, last year I think the number was like, a, uh, it affected like one-third of the league ended up moving. I look at this, even this year, even that much more. But the interesting thing will be that um, the front-line players for the best teams in this league, with the exception of Jalen Brunson, and who really knows where he's going to go, um, are not going to move. All the movement is going to be someplace else. You know, Boston might have some movement at the end of the bench. Golden State might lose some guys because of the cap at the you know uh, at the end of the bench. But in terms of uh, in terms of the, your uh, rotation players, that will be on the second and third echelon teams, and even the fourth echelon. Uh, it will be fun to watch. So put on your seatbelt. It's going to be fun. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate the call, and thanks for checking in again. You know, the free agency is big because. Everybody's excited about the massive movement in NBA free agency. When it goes big, when someone like LeBron James moves teams, you see something epic and huge when it moves. Everybody loves that. But a lot of times it's just picking up a player or two. Now, I'm not a huge Zach Levine guy, but he could be a nice piece on a team, a second player. He's a number one up there with DeRozan in Chicago, but he could be a two, or he could be someone that could help a team that's a four or five seed get over the top. Teams are desperate to get anybody in free agency. There's so many teams that aren't competitive. And there's so many free agents that don't want to play for teams that aren't competitive. It's really hard. A lot of players chase the money, but they don't want to chase the money to Portland, Sacramento, New Orleans, Memphis, Detroit. They don't want to go to these markets. They want to go where the palm trees are. JT, wrapping it up next, Raider Nation Radio. I told y'all, don't let us win a championship, and clearly nobody could stop it. Um, I warned y'all, so I'm just going to continue to destroy people on Twitter, as I have been. 
So that's Draymond, and we have more sound on Draymond going after Kendrick Perkins. So I thought Draymond crossed the line with this upcoming comment. This is Draymond talking about Kendrick Perkins, who's now an analyst on ESPN. Kendrick Perkins, you act like this clown, and it's baffling to me. He could never be you. You know why he could never be you? Because he never done it. You go up here acting like him. You don't have to do that, buddy. You played. You did it. Go talk about it. Or can you not? I'd hope that you can. With all these hot takes you make, you should be able to. You don't have to act like that, my man. You don't have to go up there. You go from being enforcer to How does that happen? At least you act like an enforcer. I didn't really ever take you for one. Yeah, to use the C word, which is derogatory, you can figure it out on your own. I don't use that language on radio or refer to anybody that way. But that Draymond is just unstoppable now. So Kendrick Perkins heard about this, and then he went out, not on television. He went on his own social media and said this to Draymond. Hey, Draymond, you good? The f*** wrong with you? Didn't you just win your fourth championship? What the f*** you worried about me for? What, you mad? You mad because I'm doing it my way and it's happened to work? I'm doing it my way. I ain't got to do it your way. Forget the old media. Forget the new media. I'm going to stand by the old law. And the old law says all that disrespect and all that uh, calling somebody a man, you got me up. Ain't nothing about me. Ain't no and ain't none of that. We all know, dog. You all barking no bite. We know this. The NBA brothers know this. A lot of them that's talking behind your back with the whispers, they know this. They know you not gonna do nothing. This is facts. You can talk about me as an ESPN analyst. You can talk about my takes. But what you not gonna do is, you not gonna disrespect me and call me no And I'm gonna stand on that. You talk about standing on something, I'm standing on that. Wow. I What is going on here? He works for ESPN. He's just dropping F-bombs and going after Draymond after Draymond disrespected him. You know, that is new media. People are asking me, what's old media or new media? I'm in the media. I've been doing this 26 years. But I'll tell you this. I think the new media now is you can use profanity, you can curse, you can disrespect people on Twitter. You can do that back in the day. It's not get off my lawn crap. Okay, the old media of Bob Costas, Brian Gumbel. Brent Musburger, Vin Scully, they all did it on a class level. Now you got guys on different platforms and podcasts calling each other racial slurs and dropping F-bombs. Is that what new media is? I, I guess apparently it is. Man, I gotta use, we got to do more on that topic. The definition of new media, old media. Wow. Thanks to our guest, Eric Pincus. Uh, we talked to Hostetler, Jeff Hostetler, Matt McCants. That was a fun show today. I really enjoyed that. Harry Ruiz will be in for me on Thursday and Friday. Excited for that. You'll get the best. Harry will be coming in on those days. I'll see you back here tomorrow before I head out to L.A. Have a great day. Q on deck.